This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we talk total design with Danish architect David Toolstrup. We also find out how one timber skyscraper could tempt office workers back into town. And we visit Store Projects, an association of creatives working to address inequalities in design. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. David Tulstrup is renowned for his modern and globally minded take on Scandinavian design. The Danish architect has had a varied career, studying in Paris and Copenhagen, working as a photo stylist for magazines, and practicing for the likes of Jean Nouvel and Peter Marino. All that before establishing his own namesake studio in 2009. David's wide-ranging practice, which includes residential projects, furniture design and restaurant interiors, has now been given the hardback treatment in a new book, David Toolstrup, A Sense of Place. It's published by Fiden. To find out more about his career path and some of the stories documented in the new publication, David joined me in the studio. I think where I am today is that now I'm an architect and I have a interior architecture degree and a master in architecture as well. And then I started as a stylist. So I always talk about how I want to make something complete, something wholesome, where my ideal project is doing a full architecture project, exterior, interior, doing the interior and then doing the selection that goes into it and doing the, 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 the final styling of that project. For me, that is sort of like, um, I just came from the Danish embassy for breakfast and that was done by Anna Jakobsen who sort of like actually also did everything and I love that I that possibility of actually putting a mark a 360 mark on everything. But what impact does that have on the people that ultimately use the space? What's the benefit of, of going right down to those final details of you know Jakobsen was famous for picking the, the cutlery like what's the benefit of going to that level? I think it's about having something that's really created where you know the exterior the landscape the journey to the interior how you used interior, that everything feels thought out, and whether it's calm or not calm, it, it doesn't matter really, but it's thought out and it has a, a wholesome final imprint on the people that are using the spaces. You know, I think that it's something where it feels wholesome. Yeah, um, I, I've been yeah, to that embassy yeah. and it does. It feels very, very considered and, and you, you almost feel taken care of exactly. by, by the building. Yeah. I mean, you also talked there about, you know, for, for the people at how do you build those relationships with your clients to make sure that your selections are appropriate for what they need? Can you tell me a little bit about those human relationships that you have and how they inform your design? I think some of them I'm, I'm lucky with in terms of that they I don't want a new house uh, where they don't have anything to put into the project. That's one kind of clients that I have. Another, they then do have something and then it's about having a dialogue with them about, you know, how could we put that into a different context? How could we use the furnitures differently? What is the most important for you within what it is that you already have. So, of course, when we're talking private clients, it's very much about finding that fine, fine-tuning the dialogue. Some they're, they're all very different, and some have a lot, some have nothing in terms of, of, of objects uh, or furnitures that they want to move in with. And it's my job to create a new home or a new hospitality experience for my clients. Of course, I want to engage in that dialogue and, and understand them the best as possible. But my imprint is also how I curate it. You know, I never say that I only want to work with my own products. I want to work with others. I want to work with vintage and antiques. And therefore, of course, when, when clients have something, that takes a part 
into that curation of how I do it. So if they come with something that I really don't think is maybe interesting, then I will make it interesting in the way that I put it into a context. Yeah, I mean, and in context is such a, I guess, important word, particularly in the work that you do. I mean, we've featured your book, A Sense of Place, in monocle on design minute but I, I think it's also a good chance to i guess talk about the defining feature of this book which is developing a, a sense of place and and that for me is really about con- context but i mean how do you define it how do you approach that and incorporate that into your work like i in january it's going to be 15 years since i started my studio so it's everything is a long journey and the projects that i did when i started is very different from the projects i'm being offered and have the possibility to work on today. So my journey in that way has been very much about understanding where it is that I am, where is the project and how can I actually feed into that project. So I always try to take the reason why the book is called A Sense of Places because I always start from somewhere. I start understanding the location, the perimeters. Is it a at a beach, in a forest, in a city environment? What is the material palette that is in the nearby neighborhood of where I, I'm doing a project because I analyze that and actually take that into the project so that the experience from coming from exterior and going into my project feels natural. And therefore, this analyze uh, and research that I do becomes such an important part of my final projects. Is there a good example in the book that you can talk to and, and use as, a, I guess, a explainer, a real-world example of that? I think the, the, the real good projects that are coming out, uh, because this this book represents 12 years of, of work, um, I think Norma is a good example um, in, in, in the book here because it's very much about uh, the local materials, it's all Scandinavian materials, it's oak, it's pine, it's uh, bricks done in, in, in Denmark, it's about how also the, the art pieces can going to come in, uh, there's in Norma there's these tables and sort of like decorative pillars that are made out of this um, wood that was reclaimed and found in the water just next to Norma so here there of course also was a, a, a massive because each of the different buildings have a different material palette so each of them had a s- specific research done um, so so I think Norma is probably the best example in this book for really how to understand how I work with materiality Okay, and, and and I guess I, I want to uh, ask you another question. You you told me this over over dinner once, but this remarkable story about how you were commissioned to I guess revisit and and refurbish your your childhood home, and and in the book you you do write about that and you talk about the soul of the place and and how you came back and you felt that the soul was missing and and you restored that. Can you tell us a little bit about? I guess, the soul of a place in the context of this yeah. amazing story of being commissioned to return to your childhood home. Yeah. So it was it was very, very strange because I, I just got a phone call and someone in my in my studio answered and sort of like, hey, there's these uh, clients that potentially want to do something with you. They bought a house up north. It's like a property that looks something like this. And I was like, okay, sure, I could I could go up and see it. And I, it was not until sort of like driving up there almost, I think, that, that I looked at the address. I was like, that's strange. That's my, that's my childhood home. So, uh, so so I was like very, very shocked. I went up there. I met them. They were extremely sweet. And they bought this uh, this well, very beautiful house that I knew very well, but had changed a lot because I left. Uh, my parents moved out of there when I was probably 12. And it had gone through four or five different hands since that very short period <laughs> where I am today. Very, uh, very short. I just want to be clear <laughs> exactly, on that. This was yeah. <laughs> a number of years, mere years. I got to not do the whole house. I got to do parts of it. And it was 
I got very sort of like I have so fond memories of this house. My childhood was amazing there. I am next to the forest, and and I got kind of very saddened to see how you know there was some beautiful material palette in this house. You know, Greenlandic marble floors and wood panels, and it was not painted white when I was a kid. It was it was very um, material based, uh, and I came up and they had t- torn up everything and just painted it white and put in some cheap wooden floors, and it was just super sad. And I was like. You know, I had to do something because I wanted to. This house has been there from, you know, three hundred years or something like that. I wanted to make sure that it, it has a future, and I agreed with the clients to help them with certain parts. And it it was a beautiful process trying to create a contemporary context for it, but still really respecting this material palette that I remembered having had in this in this home. I think soul is is such a beautiful description like it's it's such a beautiful way to talk about architecture and architecture having a soul and for me just from from what you said there it, it does sound like there's a strong link between materiality and and soul is mm. is that correct does that work yes. across your other projects yeah i think it does because i'm i'm very much about you know i think the way that i create i create also that we we remember things we remember experiences we remember materiality and i want to have that connection between something recognizable something that we feel safe in. And for me, that is, you know, materiality. It's the warmth that it gives. It's the tactility experience. So I believe I bring soul into my projects by actually working like that. I always look for creating something that feels good to be in. And that is my my quest, you know. My thanks to David Toolstrip there. His new book, edited by Berlin-based art and architecture critic Sophie Lavelle, is available in all good bookshops now. It's fair to say that office architecture, layout and design has been under intense scrutiny since 2020. But with more and more evidence to suggest that remote working is holding companies and people back, how can we use good design to encourage a commute to the office? Monocle's Emma Nelson paid a visit to a newly finished project in London to find out. Noisy, dirty, expensive and overcrowded. Is it any surprise people don't want to come back into work? Here in central London, people are spending on average just 2.3 days a week in the office. In unsympathetic circles, they have a nickname based on when they're at their desk. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. They're called twats. But earlier this year, the think tank Centre for Cities warned that the short-term benefits of less travel could come at the long-term cost to productivity, collaboration and learning. So can we design ourselves back into the office? Well, one company thinks it can. In the last 20 years, the Office Group have developed more than 70 large-scale flexible workspaces in the UK and in Germany. For firms which don't want a decade-long lease or headaches such as plumbing, they have the option now of short-term contracts in high-end serviced workspaces. And according to the company's COO, Toby Ogden, his clients' priorities have changed. I think there's been a sort of shift that historically used to build the office for the company. So it's like... How good does this office build? How does it match with our external facing brand? Is it the most sort of grand entrance? And no one really gave much consideration to the people who worked in it. I think that's been flipped on its head now. 
people like to come together, they don't want to do it in the same setting as they did before. There's no point trekking across London or Bristol or Leeds to come to an office to sit at a desk doing the work that you could do at home. They wanted to talk to each other. They wanted to engage with each other. Toby's offices now have more heavily used communal spaces, more phone booths for private calls and meeting rooms with technology to connect with those elsewhere. Keeping sustainability front and centre, they prioritise refurbishing existing buildings. But this year, they completed the black and white building, London's tallest mass timber office built from scratch. It's made top to bottom from wood. And whenever its architect, Andrew Waugh, talks about it, his face lights up. Standing in its broad, warm ground floor space, this is a building that makes you smile. So if you imagine the the front of the building is an open glazed facade, behind the facade is a double height space with a large staircase leading down to the lower ground floor. And then at the side, there's a kind of wide alleyway that leads down with some bike racks. And then that leads you down to the middle of the building where you walk in where the front doors are and you walk into the reception desk. Behind the reception desk are the lifts and the staircase and some more meeting rooms. But from the reception desk back to the street is this large open space. It's about four and a half meters from the floor to the ceiling and it's all timber. So you can see timber all around you, timber floor, timber furniture, timber ceiling, timber columns, beams, walls and a timber kitchen. It's a flat pack and there's none of this. Every couple of days for 14 weeks we had a truck that arrived from Germany parked outside the building and a crane just there in the light well and the crane picked up the piece of timber which had a barcode on it and a person with a barcode reader read off the barcode saw on an iPad where the piece of timber went and that was placed exactly in position. So we built the entire building above the ground floor in 14 weeks. Six people, 893 pieces of timber and 13,700 screws. It's a firm pushback against recent corporate design. I went to see a client on Friday in this brand new building in the city and it's white marble when you walk in, all shiny white marble, maybe six metres tall, you know, and there's a kind of, there's a Hepworth in the corner and then a solid marble desk with a big brass top to it. And I waited by reception and these two people came in to meet me and took me all the way back to the lifts, which was miles away. And all they did from the reception desk to the lifts was apologize for the building that they were in. white building has none of this. Toby sees it in the way visitors react. <laughs> it's the number one thing people say when they come in or afterwards. They go, wow, you can really smell it. How deliberate is this, I asked Andrew. Have you found that people stroke the building more than they stroke other buildings? Because <laughs> you do come in and you and you, it's incredibly tactile and it's incredibly embracing. And there's, there's evidence to suggest actually that if you are surrounded by wood, you work better. Yeah, right? absolutely. Data is solid. You sleep better in a timber building. You have lower heart rate, lower stress levels, greater productivity, greater concentration. You're more likely to come to work, so less absenteeism. If you're recovering in a timber hospital, you get well quicker. If you're educated in a timber building, you learn more. I mean, if you think about it, it's a no-brainer. And Toby claims it's worth the expense. If you think about most businesses, 
their office is a relatively small percentage, low single digits of their cost base. And their people are probably their number one cost. So 7%. 7%. So let's imagine your people are 80%. And then if you think about absenteeism, so let's say you take out two or three working days a year and you do the maths. If you could reduce that by half by being in a timber building, that more than outstrips the increased cost perhaps of paying to be in a timber building. So those relative costs and the parameters make so much sense for a business. That sort of notion that you're going to intimidate your staff into working harder, you know, that you're going to be kind of like, you know, the masters of industry. I just think it's over. I think it's done. I think that died in COVID, you know, and it's actually, you know, enticing people back to the workplace, giving people the places that they want to be in to work in. That's the future of the office space. The office is something that is now a choice. It's a choice for companies, it's a choice for leaders, choice for shareholders. You can choose whether you have an office. Some people believe you can deliver the same service for your company at home as you can, as well as you can in person. We fundamentally disagree with that. We believe that being in person is, well, we're a tribe, right? You know, there's a reason why we all get together. You put us all in a jungle, we'll all kind of gather. We think that the office is somewhere that kind of promotes that, brings the best from people. For Monocle in London, I'm Emma Nelson. Finally on today's show, Store Projects. It's an association of creatives in London and Rotterdam working towards a common goal. Their aim is to address the social imbalance in art, design and architecture education by supporting young people from underrepresented backgrounds through the application process. Their approach consists of three core elements, an educational program, socially engaged practice and diverse public events. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, headed to their retail outpost in the east of London to meet one of the co-founders, Kevin Green. So we're in Hackney in Store Store. This is a design shop and it's also where we run our after-school clubs. So twice a week from 5 till 7.30, about 15 students will come in here and they will work on different projects. So we've done chocolate casting, 3D printing, mapping, deconstruction, design, making sheds, taking apart sheds. We've got some ceramics coming up and we're doing extruded food at the moment. The students are 15 to 18 years old. They're all state school students um, and we prioritize pupil premium students, so students that are on free school meals. Um, we will take slightly younger students sometimes, and certainly when we go out to schools, we'll work with much younger students as well, so years 9 and 10. We work predominantly with the 15 to 18-year-olds because they are at that stage now where they're thinking about what they might go on to do next, so the transition into a career or into university or into an apprenticeship. And within the creative field, they'll, they will often need a portfolio alongside that. They'll need a, a statement, a CV, 
the sort of things that we in the off-school club can help them with and support them with as they're going into that next stage. We have lots of different objects here. We've got some ceramics, we've got some candles, some spoons and cutlery over there. So talk to me a little bit about what we've got on show here and what people can buy in this space here and that, how that connects to these programmes you're running. So this is, this is actually our second space. So we, we originally started about five years ago now in Camden. And the focus there is product design, but that includes textiles. We've done animation off school clubs, but also ceramics and homewares and things like that. So in this shop, you'll see some of the projects that students have worked on. So there's an extruded ceramic vase here in front of us. And everything that's sold in the shop goes back to supporting the next after school club and also the students getting royalties from the things that they sell. So we've got a really nice example down at the front of the shop there, some glassware. I think it was the first after school club we ever did. So that's five years old now. We're still selling them. They're still being produced and the students are still getting royalties from them. And so one of the students now is graduating university and still gets royalties every six months. We have students who come to us for different reasons. There are some students that are coming to make friends. There are some students who come almost as a type of therapy. Certainly the ceramics courses are quite therapeutic. The main part of students that come are, are those that are interested in pursuing a, a, a creative career. So this gives them just a little bit of a taste of what they could expect from working as a product designer later on in life and, and how that might work. It builds confidence. So if you can design something from scratch and then see it in a shop and also see that people will pay money for it, that is something that gives a young person confidence in their own ability. And there's quite a range of different disciplines, even just looking around this shop here. Why is it really key for you to show the breadth of practice that's happening and to bring in practitioners from all these different disciplines? One of the things that we're trying to do here is bring in people with slightly unusual practices and processes that they've developed themselves. There isn't a lot of image-based stuff that you see in here. It's mainly all material and process. The reason for that is it's partly due to the, the amount of time that we have with students. We're, we're working with them only for a month at a time. So we really want to throw them into sort of quite interesting processes straight away. And we also want to teach them about new processes that are being developed, more sustainable ways of using materials and recycling materials and thinking about our engagement with these objects. So very material-led here. And can you give a couple of examples of some of those more interesting takes on material or explorations that people have been bringing in? The extruded ceramics is a really nice... So we're actually doing a really fun summer school at the moment, which is about extrusions generally. So the students are testing forms with food. So they're making chiros, and they're making different dyes that will make different shaped churros that come out of that. But that's a sort of test for some architectural ceramics that they're also designing at the same time. And so they can translate the dough into clay and they're sort of equivalent, and then make these tiles and different fixings out of ceramics. 
and and that's a little bit similar to way to the way that these vases were made as well during lockdown we were working a lot online so there's a lot of video game development teaching students about how to use programs like blender then translating some of the things and designs that they made into wrapping paper and that also meant that we could work with designers really from across the world so we worked with a south korean graphic designer and we've had, had uh, designers from the Netherlands teaching the students Italy I know you've got like an outpost in Rotterdam or there's involvement there tell me how these two outposts maybe speak to each other Tessa runs that she started with us here I think in year two and stayed with us for about a year and a half and decided to move back to Rotterdam but wanted to set up a store there she runs that independently as a charity in Rotterdam but they do talk to each other, so we'll try and meet up online once a month and talk about good practice, things that are working well, designers that we've worked with that's been particularly fruitful and it's gone really well, and things that haven't gone so well and things that we should steer clear of and try not to do in the future. Another big ambition for next year is to run a summer school with half of their students and half of our students, so perhaps our students will travel over there and their students might travel here, or we might collectively go somewhere together so that'd be a really nice way to kind of cross-pollinate ideas as well and i'm hearing a little bit from the workshop downstairs busy working away um but what what's the response been like from students who are able to get their hands dirty actually just try things things out for real rather than theorizing or i guess watching a video about a process but actually to give it a go and to learn by doing just the other day 15 students were taken to the hg matthews brick factory about an hour out of London and then they came back and they were making their own bricks at the Story Garden in Camden and I think they just really loved that experience seeing how bricks are made how they're fired how they're cast and then having to go themselves and I think especially with the after school clubs as well coming after school they've sat down all day they've worked in a slightly different way for most of the day and then to be able to get their hands dirty try things out work in the workshop downstairs. I think they really enjoy that. There's um, a big part of your website, which is the open resources, bringing some of what you're doing and making it accessible for teachers, practitioners, anywhere to have a go and to bring these projects into their own classrooms or programmes. Why was that important for you to ensure that there was that element to, to store and that you were opening up the, the doors and allowing others to have a go as well? We're really aware that there's a limited catchment. Students can travel, and that means there's a lot of people that miss out on that. And, and we can only teach 15 students at a time. For us, there had to be a way to kind of expand that out a little, and this was one of the ways that we could do this. This project actually was meant to be exclusively for the state school sector and, and to fit really tightly into curriculums. The pandemic came along and we sort of adapted it so that anyone at home could work with quite basic materials to make these things and provided something to do during that time. We're actually working backwards now towards that original project and are hopefully going to launch some slightly more expanded manuals for state school pre-16 students and teachers. We're going into, I guess, the new academic school year. Any hopes for this round of our school clubs or hopes for where we're going next? In this space, we're going to be 
hopefully taking on one of the garages on this development site that the council owns, doing some of the consultation work with the neighbours and, and building a bit of support around the project. But then we're going to spend six months of after-school clubs working with the students to design a demountable roof that can lift the heights of those garage spaces a bit so that they can be transformed into workspaces. So hopefully, maybe this time next year, maybe in a few months' time, we'll have some workspaces that will have been designed by students. They'll have learned about different engineering principles, different making processes, and we'll have some working studio space down the road. So some of the young people who are graduating from the after-school clubs are taking on paid roles in the store. And this year we're also developing a young trustees network. So four of these graduates will be taking on those roles. And we're also going to set up a, a graduate network. So about 60 students, maybe more, graduate each year that have been on our after-school clubs and who have said in the past that they'd like to stay part of a network where they can support each other as peers. That's about us building sustainability into the organisation and hopefully some of those trustees will take over the organisation in five to ten years. Kevin Green, co-founder of Store Projects, in conversation with Maylie Evans. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylie Evans and Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>